Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. A couple of announcements before we get started this evening. First of all, again, I want to announce the uh, teen night, this is for uh, something we're trying to put together, some uh, periodic activities for the teens to spend some time together, not only with some Bible study, but also just doing, doing some fun things. And so on, we scheduled this for the 28th, August 28th, Saturday, meet up here about 4.30, have a tailgate party out in the parking lot, and then we'll uh, depart about 5.40 to go to the uh, go over to Reliant for the Texans versus the Dallas Cowboy game, contact Jeff Phipps. If you think you want to go, uh, there's, uh, we, we've reserved 20 tickets. We need to, uh, those are already about almost, what, half gone, I think. So, uh, time is of the essence and we need to, uh, <clears throat> get word on anybody who's thinking about going. So, uh, that's the announcement on the team thing. Then the other thing that's going to happen, just to give you a little heads up on a schedule, this coming Tuesday night, last Tuesday night, we made it all the way to Revelation 22:21, which means we completed the verse-by-verse study of Revelation. So this coming Tuesday, as is my uh, typical pattern, I want to do a review flyover. be interesting to compare what I said at the beginning with what I say at the end in light of what I learned going through uh, Revelation, but we'll do another flyover in an hour. And then... That will finish and complete the Revelation study. Then the next Tuesday night, uh, and the next two Tuesday nights, I thought were just, as I was doing some planning, just seemed to kind of hang, because the Tuesday night after Labor Day, we want to try to have a meeting here of uh, uh, not only the regular attenders, anybody who's regular attender or even a live streamer, who can be here on that Tuesday night after Labor Day, please try to do so, as well as we're going to want to try to get parents and, and kids here because I want to talk about <clears throat> if we can get a commitment from parents, families who want to be involved in uh, prep school, I mean involved in Bible, Bible class on Tuesday or Thursday, then we, one of the drawbacks is we don't have anything for the kids during the week. So if we can get a commitment from families who want to come and that they will be here on Tuesday night or Thursday night, have them all commit to one of those two nights, then we can start a um, start a, a program for the a class for the kids, younger kids on those on one of those two nights and develop it. But it's just like with any other group, if you have two or three people that show up, one week, and then it's another different two or three people. The next week, it's very hard to get anything going. So just like uh, I remember when I was a uh, <clears throat> student at Dallas Seminary, Bob Sahlstrom was the, he was a great old old Dallas type guy. He was, had retired from the pastorate, and he was the director of church planting and alumni relations at Dallas. And he, would, he, would, he talked about what was involved in starting a church. And he said that when he would meet with a group that wanted to start a church, he would uh, <clears throat> insist that they had to have a minimum of 10 couples, 20 people. And they had to make a commitment that none of them would miss church unless they were really sick for two years. 
because it's very discouraging if you have a group of 20 people and this week you have 10 and next week you have a different 10 and the next week you have 5 and the next week you have 15. It just loses any kind of momentum and direction and consistency. And you sort of have to have the same thing if you're going to start something for the kids midweek. You have to have some level of consistency and commitment. And I've gone through this where if you have Three kids one Thursday night and a different three kids the next week and a different two the next week and then three more the next week. It just it just falls apart. The kids don't get into it. The teachers get discouraged. Nobody cares, and it's a problem. So we need to uh, – I want to talk about that and some other ideas that we have for the year. Just have sort of like a town hall meeting with the congreg- congregation to discuss uh, uh, various things. So that's the Tuesday after Labor Day. So I was thinking the other day that – We're going to finish Revelation this Tuesday. We're going to do that the Tuesday after Labor Day. What in the world are we going to do with that Tuesday in between? Cover Psalm, uh, what is it, Psalm 117, the two-verse shortest chapter of the Psalms, or or what? So about that time, I got an email that was uh, related to the uh, approaching High Holy Days on the Jewish calendar. What they refer to as the Days of Awe begins on early this year, September 9th, is uh, Rosh Hashanah, uh, the Jewish New Year. Ten days later is uh, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And then about um, eight or ten days later, we have uh, Sukkot. And I thought, well, wouldn't that be interesting if I could get somebody from the Jewish community to come and speak on that Tuesday night about uh, what Jews believe about um, the days of all, what uh, different groups you have different uh, sects within uh, within Judaism. You have the uh, <clears throat> uh, Haredim, you have the uh, Orthodox, you have um, conservative and Reformed and Reconstructionist and everything. And there are some slightly slight variations among the beliefs and practices and customs in all of the groups. And so I started. Uh, I kind of put the word out, talked to Alan about it, and <clears throat> hit a friend who goes to. Uh, 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 Temple Emmanuel, which is down by Rice University, and one of the rabbis there, a young man, 40 years old, named Robert Haas, um, educated in Israel and, and was one of the first ordained rabbis from the West Coast, uh, reformed rabbis, is, uh, has talked with Christian groups uh, a number of times and was very uh, excited about the opportunity to come and talk to us about what they believe and what they uh, what they do. So we'll be doing that on the, that's the 24th, I believe, on that uh, Tuesday night. So we'll talk for about, I told him to talk for about 45 minutes or so, and then we'll have some question and answer. That's not an opportunity to try to get him saved, okay? We just, just want to put that out there. I know somebody's going to get a little over-enthusiastic, but, you know, one of the things, I've been doing a lot of reading the last year related to uh, Jews and Christians and Christian Zionism and Lord knows anything related to those particular topics. And one of the things that that I learned about and I have observed personally as well is I, I probably know oh, a dozen or more Jewish people who could probably give the gospel at least as well as the best of you. Okay. And because um, they and, and what you see within the Jewish community is that they feel like they're a target and you just get a lot of Christians who do fly by evangelism. 
and there's no context, there's no relationship, there's no uh, personal involvement with the individual. It's just like you're Jewish, you're a target, I need to hit you with the gospel and move on down the road. And that is that doesn't produce anything really effective in terms of a witness. So that's just the only little caveat I have for uh, uh, for that night. And I know everybody's going to really enjoy that and have a lot of different questions. And then the next Tuesday night, which will be the first Tuesday in September, we'll have our uh, town hall meeting. And then the following Tuesday night, which will be the Tuesday night between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, then I will come come and teach about uh, Christian interpretation of of these events and interact some with what uh, what the rabbi says. So uh, that's kind of coming attractions. And then the next Tuesday night, which would be the third Tuesday night in, in, in September, we'll start Acts, Romans, or uh, Colossians on Tuesday night. I still haven't decided which, but one of one of those three. So that's sort of the view of of uh, coming attractions in our announcements. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's uh, have a few moments of silent prayer so you can make sure you're spiritually prepared to study the word this evening. Then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful we can be here this evening again to study your word, to be refreshed by your word, to be challenged and Confronted by the teaching that's in your word, it's not uh, easy for us to do. In fact, it's impossible unless we're doing it in the power of God, the Holy Spirit, and on the basis of your word. Father, we pray that you would help us to clearly understand the things we study this evening, to put them into practice in our lives, that our lives may be a glorious testimony to you, to your grace and your love, both before men and before the angels. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. A couple of weeks ago in our study in Hebrews chapter 12, we came to the passage in verse 14 to the command to pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Now, that second clause there, without which no one will see the Lord, is not talking about having an eternal destiny in heaven. In fact, as we've studied in Revelation chapter uh, 21, our eternal destiny isn't actually going to be in heaven. It's going to be in the new earth in the new Jerusalem. We will be in heaven when we are taken to be uh, with the Lord at the rapture, and we will be with him during that period of time, uh, including the judgment seat of Christ and the uh, period of the tribulation, and then we return to the earth with him to rule and reign with him during the uh, messianic kingdom, during that uh, 1,000-year kingdom, the millennial kingdom. 
After that, the new heavens and the new, the present heavens and earth are destroyed by fire. The new heavens and the new earth will be created and the new Jerusalem will come out of heaven and descend to the earth. And that is where the saints will dwell. So we really don't spend eternity in heaven. We spend eternity in the new Jerusalem. Now, there are those who are going to be excluded from the new Jerusalem and those even within the new Jerusalem that are going to have, as we've studied in various passages, different levels of access to God. And that's what this describes is that believers who are described in Revelation as overcomers, that as we saw in uh, Revelation uh, chapter 2, verse 7, uh, Tuesday night, and in, uh, at the end of each of those letters, there are specific promises to overcomers, that those who overcome, uh, for example, there are those who will have access to the tree of life, and those, and they will live in the paradise of God. So this seems to indicate a special area within uh, the New Jerusalem. There's other passages that indicate that those uh, overcomers will be given a white stone and their name will be written on it, a name which nobody else knows. And this alludes to a custom in the ancient world where uh, the, the name inscribed was inscribed on a white stone and that became a, a ticket or an invitation to special uh, events uh, that were for uh, certain individuals. And so that's the idea that there's, so there are going to be distinctions among believers in heaven. That's what this describes. It's related to sanctification. Those who grow and mature spiritually are overcomers. Overcoming in Scripture, as we have seen, is related to what Jesus said the night before he went to the cross, that he had already overcome the world, and that was accomplished before he went to the cross when he paid the penalty for sin. So those are two separate issues. Overcoming the world is a sanctification or spiritual growth issue, and the, the belief in Christ at the cross is our justification, salvation issue. So this is talking about sanctification or holiness. And that part of that is we are to pursue peace. It's a command that is to characterize a believer's life, a present active indicative. And it's not stated simply here. It's also stated in other passages that we've seen, such as First Thessalonians uh, 5.15, that we are to always seek after that which is good for one another and for all all people. Now, I went through about eight points related to pursuing peace. I think this is very important. And usually when you start talking about this kind of a topic, people, uh, it doesn't take people long to realize that you're, you're talking about, uh, personal relationships and conflict resolution. And in many cases, people have some extremely difficult personal conflicts in their lives. The most difficult, of course, are those that involve loved ones, those that involve uh, family members. They may be conflicts between a husband and a wife. They may, may be conflicts between parents and children. They may be conflicts between siblings. Um, there are all kinds of, of situations and circumstances that can generate some pretty uh, profound anger, hostility, uh, resentment, and um, and vindictiveness among family members, and it always seems like we can be our very worst with someone that is that we're very close to. So we t- talk about the immediate uh, circle of loved ones that we have in terms of our family, but then secondly, we also have problems with those who are uh, <coughs> close associates or more intimate friends. 
And many of us have had circumstances where we've had uh, close friends who have in some way or fashion uh, broken their word to us, broken a contract with us, uh, betrayed us in some way, uh, stabbed us in the back, however you want to put it. And then we have to deal with this conflict re- uh, resolution. Uh, then it can extend to the further out you go in the circle, you have lesser degrees of intimacy. You have people you work with, people you're in business with, people you may have entered into uh, legal or contractual relationships with. Uh, then you go beyond that to people who are just more or less uh, casual acquaintances, people you uh, have done maybe some form of inter- business interaction, but it's been less personal. Uh, you don't really know the individual, and then you can go on out to somebody you hardly even know, somebody you just uh, meet perhaps at the grocery store or some other situation. And so we have to remember that this command to pursue peace with all is a mandate. It's part of the uh, Christian way of life, and it is a mandate to every believer. It doesn't say pursue peace with everyone who deserves it. It doesn't say pursue peace with everyone because they're such wonderful people. It doesn't say pursue pursue peace with everyone who has reacted to the circumstances and changed the way you think they ought to change and react. Uh, It's very difficult, and some of these circumstances are very, very hard and can lead to some real fractures within families that unfortunately sometimes can go on for uh, years, if not if not decades, and this is just a blight on the cross of Christ because it runs counter to everything that the Christian life stands for. Now, unfortunately, we all know of situations, and some of us are involved in situations where the person that has caused the created the conflict, caused the breach, uh, done the betrayal, is someone who really doesn't care about the Christian life. Uh, that is not under anybody's uh, authority, doesn't really care what anybody else is saying. They're just on the, you know, the high road of arrogance. And there's absolutely nothing you or I or anyone else can do that would ever uh, impact them. I mean, it's their decision to go that way, and we just have to wait on the Lord, and we have to put them in the Lord's hands. And sometimes that takes the rest of your life, maybe even longer, before there is a, a resolution. And the other thing, just as a point of observation that I've seen over the years, is that even when there is a desire to reconcile on the part of two uh, Christians over something that has happened, often the feelings are involved, the emotions have, been, uh, have, have gotten involved, and, the, and the people have become uh, hurt emotionally. Their feelings have been hurt. And it takes time. Sometimes we want to rush things. Well, this is the right thing to do. Hurry up and do it. And you can't, you, you can't do that. That's like talking to somebody whose uh, husband or best friend or child has just died. And two days later, you're saying, hey, straighten up. Quit crying. Jesus died for him there in heaven. What's the matter? You know, you can't command emotions like that. It takes time. And reconciliation and pursuing peace with somebody isn't something that just happens uh, overnight. It may take uh, some years and decades even to go through the process because of uh, the circumstances that might be involved. So we have to understand what the basis for this is. You can't just tell somebody, go make up, go be friends, go uh, forgive them. There has to be, from a biblical and Christian 
uh, background, there has to be a really solid understanding of how we do that. Because you just can't, you and I can't do that in the flesh. When our sin natures get involved, that's, that's what causes the conflict. That's what caused the conflict between man and God was man's disobedience to God's authority. And when sin gets in the way in any form, whether it's arrogance or uh, any other mental attitude, sin or sins of the tongue, that just immediately shuts down the whole process. There cannot be real, genuine reconciliation and forgiveness uh, with people apart from uh, the doctrine and apart from the spirit. Apart from the Word of God and the Spirit of God, it, it's just wood, hay, and straw. It's works of the flesh. It's trying to do the right thing the wrong way, and it just can't happen. And even when I read books on this subject or, or papers on this subject, you know what, what really bothers me is that um, you'll read and they'll give very good principles, and then they'll say, now, if, if it gets to this point, what, I, what really needs to happen is they need to go see a counselor. As if somehow the word of God, and what they, they, they didn't intend it this way, or they, they may not have consciously realized what they were saying, but you know what they, what they just said was the word of God, the spirit of God isn't sufficient. You've got to go to a counselor. And counseling then be, takes the place of the authority of the word of God. And the real problem is still not that, not that they need a counselor, is that somebody or both of the parties are still operating on arrogance. They're still operating on their sin nature, and the timing's just not right yet. Uh, so I won't talk about some of those things, but I want to review since it's been two weeks because I took some vacation time last week to just uh, take us through these first seven points very rapidly. First of all, God is identified in the Scripture again and again as the God of peace. This is part of his character, just as Scripture says God is love, God is holy. God is a God of peace. He is a peaceful God. Now, we have to understand what that means, and we will as we uh, go through, this, through the uh, subject. But we see this in passages like 2 Corinthians 13.11 and Philippians 4.9. Uh, I'm going to go fast through this, so if you don't get it, or you're watching, if you're live streaming, these are uh, posted from last time already on the website. You can get those uh, sl- the slides from there and download that. Uh, Hebrews 13.20. First uh, Thessalonians 5.23, uh, these indicate that again and again God is referred to as a God of peace. Second, the God of peace is the one who then blesses those who follow him with peace. Peace is a blessing from God that is given or bestowed upon us. There's uh, inner peace, which we sometimes relate to uh, inner happiness, the peace of God, the joy of Christ. This is Together, the word peace indicates a lack of disturbance. It indicates tranquility. It indicates contentment. But it's not a low-level contentment. It's not just uh, settling for a situation because, after all, it must be God's will. But we we truly recognize this is the authority, this is the plan of God, and I'm going to relax and be content with it and really have a measure of joy, it's something positive. You know, it's, all of this is related to, to love. And unfortunately, we've gotten the idea, or some people have gotten the idea, that uh, biblical love or unconditional love or the term impersonal love, which some people really don't like because they take it wrong, impersonal doesn't mean it doesn't involve people or persons. It means you don't have to know the person. There doesn't have to be a personal relationship with the object of your love. 
that's all it means. The term impersonal um, doesn't, it, it could, could mean other things, but it doesn't. It just means that one area that there's no a necessary personal relationship with the object of your love, like the uh, person at the uh, cash register or the police officer that pulls you over for speeding or uh, the person who cuts you off in traffic, any of those kinds of scenarios. You don't know the person, but you treat them in a very positive way, like the, then the, the classic parable that Jesus told is of the Good Samaritan, that a Samaritan was one of the most despised uh, individuals by the Jews because they were... Uh, a mixed breed. They weren't pure Jews, and they looked down upon them. And so you have uh, a, a uh, Jew that is traveling along a road, and he's uh, basically uh, bushwhacked and ambushed by a highwayman, and uh, everything he has is taken, and he's beaten up, he left by the side of the road. And this Samaritan came along who is, you know, despised in the eye of the, of, of the Jewish traveler. And the Samaritan comes along, takes him home, cleans him up, feeds him, gives him clothes, provides for him. So that love is not something that is an absence of mental attitude sin. It also has something that is very positive. It is something that is giving. So when we look at these aspects of reconciliation and peace and love, we're talking about not just doing something uh, as an absence of sin, but going the extra mile positively initiating um, initiating action. And so God is, we see that God is the model of that, and he's the one who blesses us with peace, Psalm 29.11, Luke 26.6, Psalm, uh, and then we go on to the third point, God commands his people to seek and pursue peace with all. And if he's going to command us to do it, he's going to give us the ability to do it through his word and through the Holy Spirit. Psalm 34.14 uh, is an Old Testament commandment to seek peace and pursue it. Along with Romans 14:19, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things that by which one may edify another. Uh, 1 Corinthians 7:15, God has called us to peace. 1 Thessalonians 5:13. Fourth, we saw that God described his new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah as a covenant of peace. Isaiah 54:10, Ezekiel 34:25, Ezekiel 37:26. Fifth point, I said that peace which is shalom in the Hebrew and arene in the Greek, are forms of a greeting in Scripture. And it's not just a common greeting, but the way, for example, Paul takes it and links grace to you and peace from God our Father. That is, almost every single uh, letter that Paul writes begins that way. He's taking two common greetings, the uh, grace or kyre, the Greek common greeting, shalom or peace from the Jewish common greeting, links them together and makes a theological statement out of it. Only Paul could do that. Uh, grace and peace, not just a common greeting, they're for you from God. You can't generate it on your own. So there's that emphasis that they are forms of greeting uh, throughout Scripture that, and a recognition that ultimately peace, the peace that's with you is from God. Judges 6.23, 1 Samuel 16.15, uh, Luke 24.36. Also we see in the gospel declaration of the <coughs> angels, who appeared to the shepherds, peace is the foundational message of the gospel. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. And I dealt with the uh, problem of the textual variant there last time, showing that the view of the majority text, which is this view, is the better reading of the two, not uh, to men of goodwill, but goodwill toward men. Uh, seventh, the only basis for understanding how to achieve this 
is to examine the dynamics of the most extreme conflict in history, and that is the conflict between man and God, this personal conflict that developed uh, between man and God when man disobeyed God, rebelled against God, betrayed God in the Garden of Eden, and basically relinquished his title as the king of the earth, and uh, dominion then shifted from man to the serpent. And for the moment it looked as if Satan, who had uh, taken the guise of the serpent, had put himself in a position of uh, control over planet Earth and that he had actually won. Uh, the game was just beginning, as it were. So the only basis to understand how to achieve real reconciliation and peace is to examine the dynamics of this rebellion where man rebels against God. We, and this is what is set forth in the scriptures, Romans chapter 5, uh, Colossians 1, 19 uh, through 20, indicates God's provision uh, in terms of he's the one who provides reconciliation. The one that was betrayed, the one that's wrong, the one that is maltreated, the one whose grace is th- just thrown back in his face, he is the one who takes the initiative, takes the steps to create the environment whereby peace can be restored and reconciliation can be affected. Uh, you, know, you know, the way we act based on the sin nature is the guy who screwed up is the guy who's got to initiate. But that's not how the plan of God uh, works. Also, uh, Colossians 1, 21 and 22 and then we close with the section in Colossians 2, 13, and 14 dealing with forgiveness and understanding that forgiveness comes first because a price is paid and that the peace with God is accomplished only because the sin problem is dealt with. So if we're going to understand peace, we have to start with understanding how peace is established in the greatest conflict that ever occurred in history. How did God go about conflict resolution with the human race. And it didn't happen right away, did it? Not like so many people come away with their somewhat superficial, shallow view of the Christian life and sin and all the things that go with it. We just have such a silly, superficial way of thinking about problems. And when people get all twisted up against each other, it didn't happen overnight. It often took a lot of time. Sometimes one person is hard-headed and stubborn, uh, more than the other person. Sometimes it is not going to ever be resolvable in the devil's world. It doesn't matter how much of a Christian they are. And we all have areas in our sin nature where we're just really don't want God to go there in terms of our own, in our own life and our own mental attitude. And you may be in a circumstance like that and it may not be resolvable for, for a long time. And there are circumstances and situations we see with the sin problem and the conflict resolution of sin that it took 4,000 years before God could get the conflict resolution established at the cross. Some of these things just can't be, uh, can't be taken care of overnight. The issues are far too uh, complex. So we looked at Colossians 2, 13 and 14, and we saw a couple of principles there to emphasize that, that it was at the cross because the penalty was paid that the conflict resolution could could be established. The resolution it takes place because the handwriting against us, that that decree uh, that 
sets forth the sin problem is was nailed to the cross so that we should uh, translate that last part of 13 and 14 that he was able to make us alive together with him, that is, at the time of our faith in Christ, because he had already forgiven us all of our trespasses. That's that first category of forgiveness we've studied in the past that was a legal transaction that took place at the cross where the debt was paid fully, actually, and totally. And that's what this verse says. He forgave, he already forgave us our trespasses. How did he forgive? That word that's translated uh, forgiveness here is the, the Greek word charizomai. Two Greek words that are used. We've studied these before. Charizomai and aphiemi. Both of these words are used in context of the debt payment where the, the monetary debt is eradicated. Somebody owes a debt and somebody completely erases or eradicates that debt and it's wiped out. And that's the idea of forgiveness. So that's what's described here very, uh, a little more dramatically in Colossians 2.14 by wiping out the handwriting of requirements that was against us which was contrary to us, and he's taken it, that is, that certificate of debt, out of the way by nailing it to the cross. Or because he nailed it to the cross, it happened at the cross. It didn't happen when you believed in 1959 or 1963 or 1985 or whenever it was that you trusted Christ. The sins were paid for at the cross when they were nailed to the cross. So that's why sin isn't the issue anymore. Now, that lays the legal foundation and framework for salvation. It doesn't save anybody, and it doesn't forgive anybody in the experiential aspect of it. Only, in, only the legal foundation and the rea- legal realities in terms of God's Supreme Court are resolved, sins taken care of. So if we're going to go forward with peace, we have to understand two basic elements. And these two basic elements are grace and love. It always comes back to that. We can't escape it. It runs counter to our nature 180 degrees. We are gracious and kind to those who are gracious and kind in return. And we have a real difficult time being gracious and kind to those who aren't. We love those who we like. We love those who are attractive to us. We love those who do the things we want them to do, believe the things we want them to believe, vote the way we want them to believe. Shall I go on or am I stepping on enough toes already? But God loved people who were just the opposite, that hated him, that despised him, that rejected him, that betrayed him. That's what we have to understand. If you're going to ever understand the love that the Bible talks about for the Christian life, that's this kind of love. And it doesn't happen because you just simply want it to happen. It can only be developed by God the Holy Spirit. That's why when you get into Galatians 5, 20 and 21, the fruit of the Spirit is, first of all, love. That's the first, that's not in terms of order. That's in terms of priority or significance or quality. And love is the most significant. That's the topic that Paul had introduced earlier in about Galatians 5, uh, 12 or 13, that we are to love our neighbor as ourself, quoting from uh, Leviticus chapter 18 in the Old Testament. So grace and love is the key. Now, what is grace? I know you all know this definition. I ought to call on people. Grace is unmerited favor. That means nobody does anything to to merit it. Nobody does anything to, to qualify for your love. 
In fact, the more they disqualify themselves, the more we ought to love them. That's getting too convicting. Let's move on. It's undeserved kindness. That means they don't deserve it. They don't deserve for us to get out of bed at 2 o'clock in the morning to help them. We need our sleep. They don't deserve us to be nice to them. Look at all the things we remember that they've done and how many ways that they have mistreated us, abused us. Uh, uh, all, all of these things are mean that it, our kindness to them is un- we can justify not being kind to them a hundred different ways. But we can't justify it before God. But we can justify it in our own minds. We're uh, excellent at those kind of rationalizations. So it is this kind of grace and love that has that that has to be at the ground uh, groundwork for peace, and it only comes by really understanding the gospel. Over the years, I have heard, and I remember back when I was in seminary, you'd hear I would make these remarks. Others were a little snide. Uh, spiritually superior remarks like, well, if you're a Baptist, you never get out of the Gospels, and you're, if you're a Pentecostal, you never get out of Acts, and if you're in a Bible church, you never get out of the Epistles. Aren't we superior? And um, uh, often you would have, uh, you know, in a lot of Baptist churches, uh, you'd often hear people say, well, I moved to some little small town. All I can do is go to a Baptist church, and I just get tired of, of hearing the, the pastor going through his his little book, 567 Ways to Preach the Gospel. And that is, the, the sadness there is that that's true not just in Baptist churches, but in many churches is that the pastors are not well trained and they don't know how to get beyond the basics of the gospel. And we just thank God that they get the gospel right if and when they do. But... There is a value to hearing the gospel again and again, and this is something I try to uh, drill into uh, younger pastors and new pastors, is that you never know uh, who's listening to you out there who finally is going to hear you say it a certain way and go, you know, that's the phrase I need to use when I'm witnessing to so-and-so. Maybe I can, I can say it that way or this way. You never know who's out there looking through that live streaming lens, who's going to end up getting a DVD, who's going to end up... Uh, uh, reading a transcript, who's going to end up listening to the MP3 file off of the Internet. I mean, anything that goes out on the Internet is alive and well and eternal until the new heavens and the new earth. It will always be there. Be careful what you send in emails. It's always there. It's alive and well and never-ending on planet Earth. And so we never know who's going to hear it. So people need to hear the gospel. There's always that opportunity to make it clear every time you speak, try to get the gospel in there to some degree so people understand it. But there's something even more important, and that is how many times do we come in the scriptures to these commands, like at the end of Ephesians chapter 4, where we get a command that we are to forgive one another just as God for Christ's sake has forgiven us. Oh, and then the next verse in Ephesians 5.1 says, be imitators of God in this way. Wait a minute. That means we really have to think a lot about what went on at the cross. Once again, we're back to teaching gospel cross-oriented messages again and again because it's so hard for us to understand the kind of love that God demonstrated at the cross. And he demonstrated it to us as enemies, not as friends. We were obnoxious, we were repulsive, we were unclean, filthy, loathsome to God because of our sin. There wasn't anything about us 
that was attractive to God, and yet he demonstrated love for us. Now, to understand love, you have to spend a lot of time thinking about the, the cross. And if you don't spend a lot of time thinking about the cross, you'll never understand love. And you're not going to understand it at 25, 30, 35, or 40, trust me. At, at 50, whatever I am now, 58, I still don't in, in many ways. Because this is beyond our basic abilities and comprehensions in, in, in the flesh. We have to think about this and think about this, and it, it just blows our mind every time, every time we do. And so we look at these passages, like Romans 5, 8, and we need to stop and think about this because when we, especially if you're someone who is dealing with somebody out there who has offended you, somebody that, that whose very name just vi- makes you vibrate at the bottom of your gut uh, with, with vindictiveness or hate or whatever, or if you are somebody who is in the presence of a family quarrel or a family conflict and you don't know how to resolve that or get past some of these issues, then it's easy for us to let the sin nature get its claws into the circumstance and situation, and we start thinking and we get involved in self-justification and self-deception and self-denial and all these other aspects of arrogance, and we forget that there's not one thing that that person who's offended us has done that we didn't do a thousand times more intensely to God at least five times in the last year. And we just come along and we say, okay, First John 1, 9, I'll confess my sin and God forgives me and moves on. And he does. But then when somebody says, well, you know, you need to take so-and-so and forgive them the same way God just forgave you. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I, I, I just can't do that. You don't understand what they have done. Yeah, I, you don't understand what you've done in relationship to God. That's the problem. Start dealing with that in terms of understanding God's love and forgiveness for you. Then, then... All of this is going to take on a, a new dimension. Now, whenever we get into talking about this, everybody starts getting a little uncomfortable, shifting around the seats and uh, thinking about different things and trying to figure out, wait a minute, there's got to be a hole here somewhere. Well, there's not. <clears throat> and it's as much a problem for me as it is for anybody else because that just cuts across the grain of our whole sin nature. Now, the problem, well, part of the problem we have is we don't understand love, and we come out of such a narcissistic culture, and it doesn't exclude anybody, but if you're a baby boomer, you are the personification of narcissism, and if you are younger than a baby boomer, then you are the personification of narcissism cubed. And if you're a millennial, you know what that means, you're even worse. So, you know, the poster child of narcissism is the United States of America. And that's why we have so many problems that we have. And it's very hard to think objectively when we are up to our jaws in self-absorption. And we're so subjective that we can't get out of our own experience to think in terms of what what uh, God has done and what real love is. And we have a culture that, based on narcissism, defines love no matter how you get at it, ultimately it always comes back to some kind of self-love, but it's emotion, it's a feeling, it's a number of other things that um, uh, that just can't be held up in light of how, God, how the Bible uses the word love. 
love is, first and foremost, it's not an emotion. Though it may accompany, emotion may accompany it, and there may be very rich emotion with love at times. That doesn't negate the love or the emotion. Okay, they're just two different things. Don't confuse one with the other. That, that real love, the kind of love that is demonstrated at the cross, is primarily a volitional act and a mental attitude. It's those two things together. It is a volitional act and it is a mental attitude. It, why do we know it's a volitional act? Because it is the, it's a command. You cannot command emotion. I can sit here all day long and tell you to be angry and if you just won the lottery, that's not going to happen. You can't get angry. You're not going to get angry. If, if your three-year-old child or grandchild just got ran over by a truck in the street and is lying there dead, and I tell you to be happy and joyful and feel good, you can't do it. Our emotions do not respond to commands, but volition and mental attitude are the result of commands, and we can respond in that in that area. It may not change our emotions right away, but it will eventually. So Matthew 5.44, in fact, these are several of the passages that we have in the New Testament where agape, the Greek word agape for love, which is the broader word that is used of God's love for man. He only, there's two Greek words used for love, agape and phileo, and God only has a phileo type love, which is a more intimate uh, form of love for believers. Unbelievers are never the object of a God phileo statement. You never have God loving with the verb phileo unbelievers. There's no intimacy there. There's no family relationship there. They're not in the family. But God has an agape love for the world, for all in the world. So there are distinctions there. Phileo is the more intimate kind of love uh, that we would use, that we sometimes associate with, I'll just say sometimes on occasion it's associated with, with, uh, with emotion. So in Matthew 5.44, Jesus says, But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use and persecute you. Now, if you want to get personal with this when you're at home by yourself and you're looking at the scriptures, then you can substitute somebody's name for your enemies and those who curse you, uh, those who uh, hate you, those who spitefully use you, persecute you. Just plug somebody's name in there, and that's going to get real personal. And uh, But that's what the command is. There's not exceptions. There's no asterisk in the text there that says, look at the footnote, and the footnote, your favorite person to hate is excluded. It's not there. This is not <clears throat> not easy material. This is an imperative, present active imperative, indicating that this is a standard operating procedure God commands of every believer uh, all the time. So if it's if it's commanded, it's a volitional act. That means you have to decide to do it. You can't wait till it feels right to do it because that's probably not going to happen. Those feelings are going to be generated by your sin nature and. You have to make a mental decision. Other passages like Luke chapter 6, Jesus said, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. But if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? What's the big deal if you love a nice, attractive, friendly, positive, encouraging person who's never done anything bad to you? Well, anybody can do that. That's no big deal. 
Anybody, everybody loves nice, attractive people. Even sinners love people like that, Jesus said. But he says, love your enemies. Do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the unthankful and evil. Notice, even Luke, has he's been influenced by Paul. What's he done? He's gone right back to God, that God is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. So we're not going to be kind because somehow we're better than God. John thirteen thirty four. Jesus commands love again. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. So this sets the fact that great forgiveness and grace are the foundation, and that necessitates what I usually refer to as either impersonal love or unconditional love. It's impersonal because you don't have to have a personal relationship with the, with the individual. You may not know them. They may be somebody who you just have met, run into, you have some sort of business interaction with, you don't have to necessarily be inviting them home on Sunday after church for a fried chicken dinner. You just have to uh, have that uh, uh, an interaction with them. So we, it's, in that sense, it's impersonal. But it is personal in the fact that you're dealing with another person who's created in the image and likeness of God and is a rotten sinner just like you are, and you've been forgiven of all your sin by God, not because you've done anything good or great or wonderful or attractive to God because you can't do it, and neither has this person. And that's where the, uh, that's where the comparison comes. So we have to understand that love and grace are the foundation for forgiveness and peace. Now this then results in unity. We see the extended passage, I want you to turn there with me right now, is in Ephesians 2, 11 to 18. It's <clears throat> foreshadowed in Psalm 133.1. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. So this isn't simply talking about the kind of unity and oneness we have with God because of what Christ did on the cross, but that that vertical unity is to change our horizontal unity. Now, in Ephesians chapter 2, the first seven verses deal with the gospel and understanding grace. And that's, found, that's foundational. That's basically what I've been talking about most of the time this evening is understand grace and love. For by grace you have been saved by faith and that not of works, lest any man should boast. It's not of yourselves, it's not of works, lest any man should boast. But the next verse goes on to say it doesn't mean good works aren't important. The next verse says, but we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for the purpose of good works. And that has to do with divine good, walking by the Spirit, producing the fruit of the Spirit in us which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And that involves our volition, that we have to walk in those good works, one of those is which, of which is pursuing peace with all men. Now, Paul then takes this and he applies it in terms of a circumstance where there has been a breach, a horizontal breach between the Gentiles and the Jews. In verse 11, he says, Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, talking to a primarily Gentile audience in Ephesus, 
who were called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. So this had become a, an aspect of pride by the, by the Jews, and they looked down upon the Gentiles because they were uncircumcised, because you guys don't have a covenant with God. We've got a covenant with God. We're God's chosen people. You're not, so you're, you're, you're worthless. So that is what he is criticizing here. Verse 12, he says that at the time you were without Christ, that is prior to the cross, aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, basically spiritually second-class citizens, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ, you who were once far off, that's the Gentiles were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ because the death of Christ applies to all people. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace. Now there's our word. He is our peace. Now this peace isn't just relating it to peace with God. It's relating it to the peace and the breakdown of the division between Jew and Gentile. It's true in both cases. He says, <clears throat> for he himself is our peace who has made both. Who's the both there? Jew and Gentile. This isn't talking about the barrier between God and man. It's talking about the barrier between Jew and Gentile. For he himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances so as to create in himself one new man from the two. Galatians uh, chapter 3, dealing with the baptism by the Holy Spirit, for there is neither Jew nor Greek nor bond or slave. Does that mean he wipes out the Jews? No. He wipes out physical distinctions? No. Uh, Jews are still Jews. Gentiles are still Gentiles. Uh, Asians are Asians. Chinese are Chinese. Africans are Africans. Slavs are Slavs. But spiritually, there's not going to be a racial distinction anymore as there was under the Old Testament, under the Old Testament economy. So Jesus dies to tear down this division so that in him there is now no distinction. Now, that's not making a negative statement about Jews as Jews and their culture anymore, and it's making a negative statement about Gentiles and their culture insofar as it's not influenced by paganism. So that wall of separation, the enmity between the two, has been removed, thus making peace. Now, that peace is between Jew and Gentile, not between man and God. That's what made it possible, that he might reconcile them both to God. Now, that's the vertical aspect, that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off, that is the Gentiles, and to those who are near, that is the Jews. For through him we, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. So uh, Ephesians 2, 11 to 18 lays this down that the vertical peace with God is what lays that foundation for a horizontal preach, to, a, a, a horizontal relationship of peace where uh, the enmity has been, has been completely removed. Now, let's talk about some elements of this peace. First of all, the peace that we have and that we should have, as it applies to others, should come out of an inner peace. Now, uh, when I put out the ten problem-solving devices and we deal with a, sort of a progression to maturity 
this often is seen later, but it, it's developed in bits and pieces and in different uh, stages as everybody grows in the Christian life. A baby believer has a baby believer's measure of peace. An adolescent believer has an adolescent believer's measure of peace and happiness. A mature believer has a mature believer's measure of peace and happiness. But just because peace and joy comes um, is a more mature type aspect doesn't mean that a, an infant or baby believer can't have peace and joy at, at that level for his stage. And anyone has this. You have passages like Isaiah 26, 3. God says you, you will, uh, or Isaiah says to God, you will keep him in perfect peace. That is stability, tranquility. The Hebrew word shalom also relates to health and happiness, uh, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. And the Hebrew word therefore trust is the Hebrew word batach, which we studied before, and has the idea of emphasizing the source of confidence and stability in the believer's mindset. Why do we have, why do we have confidence? Because our focal point is on him. So this takes us back to what I said about love. Number one, it's volitional. Number two, it's a mental attitude. It's a mental focus. Our mental focus is on God who shapes our application. So then we have peace. Tranquility, because our confidence rests in God, not in people, not in what people do, haven't done, how they react, how they respond, or any of those things. Another passage from the Old Testament is Isaiah 32:17. The work of righteousness will be peace. See, there is a level of integrity here, in, shaped by the Hebrew word here for righteousness. The work of righteousness is peace. You can't have peace by compromising away everything. You know, a classic example was Munich when uh, Chamberlain, the prime minister of England, compromised everything away, just, uh, 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 just got rid of all of his integrity, just flushed it down the commode, and entered into a peace at all costs, compromised away all of his values, all of his integrity by entering into a compromise with Hitler. That is not how you achieve peace with somebody who is at odds with you. You don't enter, peace is a priority, but it's not a priority at the expense of righteousness and justice and integrity. And, and the reason I get a little upset about this is every time you start saying you've got to forgive everybody, somebody comes along and says, well, I know this person who's an absolute zero-dud loser, and you mean i got to forgive him? Well, that zero-dud loser, have they ever asked you to forgive them? Have they admit, ever admitted that what they did was wrong? No. Well, then we're not there yet. You know, you don't have to compromise your integrity and righteousness and, and have a pseudo-peace. That's just pseudo-humility, and that's just going to make things worse, not better. That is not biblical peace or biblical humility. Uh, uh, biblical uh, humility. That is just uh, the reverse. It's it just a pseudo-arrogance is what it is. So the work of righteousness will be peace. It can only come in the, when, when there is integrity. And the effect of righteousness, and then we have the word quietness and assurance forever. That first word in the New King James that's translated quietness is the Hebrew word shakat, which means to be quiet, to be tranquil, to be at peace, to be undisturbed by anxiety. So when you think about that person, you're not going to start getting all riled up emotionally with your stomach churning. Undisturbed by anxiety and 
Um, the second word there translated assurance is actually our friend batak from the previous verse. It means confident trust in God. So let's uh, retranslate this a little bit for to get its sense. Uh, the work of righteousness will result in peace. There's a connection between righteousness and peace. You cannot have peace when there is unrighteousness. And the effect of righteousness is quietness that is an undisturbed tranquility and confidence forever. That's when there's peace. Another passage, Isaiah 48:18. Oh, that you had heeded my commandments, God said, then your peace would have been like a river. You can't get this kind of peace and create it artificially. It's got to come from God, and again, it's located in connection with obedience to God, which is where you get the idea of, of, uh, of righteousness. Is It's in accord with the standard of God, and so righteousness has to be there. That comes from obeying the commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. And so there is a connection between integrity and peace. And then uh, one last verse to close on, John fourteen twenty seven. Jesus said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Notice the contrast to peace is not nonviolence. It is inner tranquility and stability. The word translated troubled is the Greek word terasso, which means to shake together, to stir up, to disturb, to unsettle things, to throw things in disorder, to stick your emotions in your emotional blender and get everything all churned up. So when you have the peace, which comes from the word of God, the spirit of God, uh, also a fruit of the spirit, is the opposite. Don't let your heart, that, that is, don't let your thinking get upset and all churned up by focusing on the wrong things and letting your sin nature get in control, neither let it be afraid. And this is not phobos, which is our, our phobeo, is the verb phobos, the noun for fear. This is uh, the Greek word deleao, which also has that idea of fear, but it also relates also to worry and anxiety and brings in uh, that whole measure of, um, uh, of meaning there. So Jesus contrasts the peace that we have from the Holy Spirit, which he gives us, to that which gets us all stirred up and, um, and all out of focus and all uh, shaken up in, inside emotionally because we've gotten our focus. We're just like Peter. We just get our focus on those blasted waves all the time and start sinking rather than putting our focus on the Lord and the Word of God and the Spirit of God. So we'll uh, come back next time to start looking at the path to peace in terms of how do we really implement this in terms of uh, other people around us and also addressing the question of how do we deal with those who just don't care and they're not going to respond. So we'll do that next week. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things and pray that we'll be able to uh, think them through. God, the Holy Spirit, would make it clear to us to apply these things in our life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.